Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. So today uh, we're going to talk about trolley and it's one of the uh, uh, acute uh, reactions from uh, blood transfusions. I guess my first question is, Evan, why is it you want to scare us? <laughs> well, one thing I've found uh, with a lot of medics coming out of the course is that there's a historic fear of transfusion. So we've worked really hard to overcome that and make sure our medics are confident and competent to perform field blood transfusions. And that's a good thing. But in some cases, maybe the pendulum swung a little bit far, and some medics are not as comfortable with the adverse events that can happen when performing a blood transfusion. And it's important that any treatment that we do, we're aware of some of these adverse events, and particularly means of decreasing their likelihood. Cool. Um, and I think that's very smart. Um... Obviously, you want to be confident in some in a you know life saving intervention, but you also can't have blinders on and just run into it, right? Exactly. You've really got to you know know what can go wrong so you're ready to act. And again, mostly if you can prevent it, that's going to be the most important thing. So uh, trolley again, transfusion related acute lung injury. Um, incidents, at least that I've looked up, I mean, has a great big range, has one to 500 all the way out to one in 100,000. So um, to me, that's telling me that nobody actually really knows what the incidence is. So I think there is some lack of clarity on how common this is. Uh, in some studies, they think it's been overreported, and in some studies, they think it's been underreported. It is a clinical diagnosis, and there are two types of trolley which can more or less be summarized as somebody who gets ARDS, which is how trolley presents, without any reason other than the transfusion. And then patients who get ARDS who already had a risk factor, but this may be worse now related to the transfusion. However, the other thing that's confounding that data and makes the range really high is that the safeguards that have been put in place in the U.S. and in Europe to prevent trolley have dramatically over the past few decades decreased the incidence of trolley in the the mainstream okay. medical establishment. So, you know, I guess first things first, like how do we even recognize that this is happening? So trolley, first of all, you have to have a transfusion uh, going on. And what happens is as early as during the transfusion or within a few hours of transfusion, the patient tends to develop a respiratory distress syndrome that is basically like other forms of ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. You're going to see the patient develop increasing dyspnea, tachypnea, decreasing pulse ox and rowels. They may have associated hypotension. They're not going to have signs of fluid overload as the reason why their lungs are getting crackly and you know ugly sounding. There may or may not be a fever. There may or may not be cyanosis present. 
And if you have the ability in the field to ultrasound them, you may see, you know, bee lines and infiltrates with your uh, pulmonary uh, ultrasound. Is there anything that is kind of like a, like a heralding type um, sign or symptom um, that would tell us, hey, this is starting and we need to stop transfusion? I would consider this diagnosis in any patient that you're transfusing that starts developing worsening dyspnea and you've ruled out your other immediate causes such as tension pneumothorax and so on. So you've got your trauma patient that you're trying to resuscitate and you felt pretty confident that you've addressed the chest, that you don't think that they've got pneumothorax or anything else that's going on. And now all of a sudden, they're starting to develop very coarse breath sounds and difficulty breathing. That should be an indicator that you may be okay. experiencing trolley. Um, is there anything that makes this um, a trolley, I guess, more likely to happen? Or is it just kind of random? Well, that's where things get a little bit more interesting, is that trolley is in the civilian world most commonly associated with the transfusion of plasma or platelet products not so much the red blood cells and the thought is that some people have certain types of antibodies in either their serum or perhaps associated with their platelets that will attack neutrophils and cause pulmonary inflammation and this type of anti-neutrophil antibody is most common in women who have previously been pregnant. Okay. Um, so, I mean, to me, you know, just reading about it beforehand, it sounds like a, a SERS response. Is that fair? It's going to it's going to give you a lot of the SERS syndrome, where you may have a fever, you may have uh, tachycardia, tachypnea. So yes, it's very much going to give that. But something that isn't always going to be present in a systemic inflammatory response is the significant degree of hypoxemia. So you're going to have patients who have, you know, severe lung inflammation that makes it very, very hard for them to oxygenate. And that's going to be present in some forms of systemic okay. inflammatory response, but um, not others. Of the other things that I read uh, that, that could increase the risk were things like burns, um, long bone fractures. I would, I would assume like pelvic fractures would be in that, um, aspiration and sepsis. And just reading the kind of list of things, it sounds like anything that would start to ramp up the kind of immune response or that surge response in the body would make you more likely to have a, a trolley or probably some other transfusion reaction. Absolutely. So anything, and that's where we talk, get into that trolley type one versus trolley type two of many of the things that would be just risk factors for ARDS can be risk factors for the development of transfusion-related acute okay. lung injury. So, you know, you have this injury, um, which a lot of those are already indications to kind of give blood, right? Um, and then if you're not doing your kind of background um, checks, right, uh, finding out who your donors are and uh, being smart about it, uh, the the risk of this can be relatively high compared to you know somebody who is not 
In some studies, this is still the leading cause of transfusion-associated mortality in the United States. So this isn't a, a non-existent syndrome. This is something that's out there. It's not something that you're likely to see every day. But again, most of us are working in places when we're not deployed where there are okay. already safeguards so, in place. Kind of now that we, I think, have a pretty good idea about recognizing it, what can I do about it? So... If you suspect that your patient is experiencing transfusion-related acute lung injury, their transfusion should be stopped immediately, and you should start looking at supportive therapy. The first step should usually be the application of supplemental oxygen, since you're going to find a patient dyspneic and probably hypoxemic. 70% of trolley patients are going to require a ventilator. So expect that this patient may need an invasive airway and ventilatory support as their trolley develops. And the guidelines recommend that if you do put the patient on a ventilator, you want to use the ARDSNET protocols for a lung protective strategy utilizing low tidal volumes and PEEP that is proportionate to the FiO2. So that's the easy part is really supplemental care or um, supportive care is going to be your primary means of treating trolley. There is some controversy over the place of steroids in trolley. Uh, that's something I would talk to your online medical support about, but it is not a standardized part of trolley care. The harder decision to make is if you have your polytrauma patient and now you've stopped that blood product, what do you do about continuing resuscitation? Typically for patients like this with trolley and ARDS, we want to minimize the application of fluids to whatever extent possible while maintaining an acceptable hemodynamic status. So we're gonna try not to give them more fluids than we need to. Some of the civilian guidelines talk about pasta water and pressors as opposed to blood products, the fear being that if we start giving more neutrophils that we're pouring gas on the fire. I'm concerned about that recommendation because I'm not sure that it's really been well validated in trauma patients requiring continuing resuscitation. And we've learned a lot about the importance of blood products and trauma over the past few decades. So I think that if you are in that situation, you have to weigh the risk of potentially worsening their trolley by using an alternative blood product. You definitely don't want to give them what you've been giving them. But if you have another donor, especially a donor with a better risk profile, then if that's what you need to save their life, then you know you manage the trolley as you can. Um, but go okay. ahead, Dennis. I'm sorry. Um, so I mean that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, you want to stop the transfusion from that unit, okay? And I'm assuming that uh, you know people in you know in the I guess some people in the audience that would actually be using this in an austere type situation, you're not going to have a whole bunch of units. Uh, at your disposal. Um, so I guess narrowing it down to which unit, it's probably fairly easy. Um, should we be labeling our bags as far as not only like time of collection, but maybe, hey, this was male or female, um, and then, you know, discontinuing if we happen to be using a female well, owner at 
when we notice this reaction happening, stopping that transfusion and switching over to a male donor and continuing resuscitation? Well, I think that brings up an important point, and this is part of what spurred my interest in this topic, is that ideally, if you're planning ahead for a walking blood bank, you should be looking at the clinical practice guidelines ahead of time, and you should be appropriately screening your donor pool uh, according to that CPG. And it's something that we're not always doing as much as we should. So understanding that if you're out in a ditch and you're with your team and your you know, bullets are flying and you're trying to quickly do walking blood bank in a very, very dangerous environment, you may not have the time to draw all of those extra tubes in your field transfusion kits and you may not do all of the paperwork. But what I would argue is that as much as possible ahead of time before you get into that situation, if you pre-complete the paperwork for all of your potential donors and you know wherever possible perform appropriate testing, that will potentially be life-saving if a patient downstream has a problem. So the clinical practice guidelines do an excellent job of providing the appropriate documentation where we can screen, you know, who the blood came from and keep track of it and screen them for potentially disqualifying conditions. The problem is it relates to trolley that I experienced on my last deployment where half of my potential donors were female was the CPG makes a brief mention of this issue in the introduction However, it does not discuss it at all when it goes step-by-step step through the screening process. And the screening form that's included with the CPG for documenting the donor's medical history, while it does solicit pregnancy history from female patients, it doesn't say anything about what to do with that. And the reason for that is because it's the same form that they're using for standard blood donation back in the States. And, you know, these issues of previous pregnancy history wouldn't be disqualifying for somebody just donating packed red blood cells. However, for us planning to do walking blood bank with whole blood, this would be a major consideration. And it's not very clearly spelled out in the clinical practice guideline. Um, so if... Blood is obviously it's a it's a short short commodity. Could we um, I don't know fill the gap I guess with maybe a calcium or something like that. Well, you know I think again we've learned the hard way that really at least with our current level of science there's no substitute for blood products in a patient who needs them. So sometimes, especially in a resource-constrained environment, we have to make difficult choices. And this also gets back to that planning ahead for this stuff, that if you're going downrange and you know that a significant portion of your walking blood bank donor pool is female, and especially if they report a positive past pregnancy history, then there is the ability to test for some of these anti-neutrophil antibodies and so on to make them an appropriate donor as per the Armed Forces Blood Program guidelines. However, those tests are potentially expensive and they're certainly not something that's going to be done automatically as part of your OLO titer program. 
obviously you don't want to um deny i guess a source of blood when you def when you need it i guess how would you prioritize just right off the bat i don't know what somebody's um levels are i don't actually know if they've ever been pregnant in their life and if they have i don't know what their risk is off the off the top of the bat um when we're you know in a mass casualty situation right i don't i probably am not thinking of stuff like that um would there be i guess would it be prudent to just kind of um prioritize my units you know, you have, you know how they say like, hey, if, if you donated within the first, within a year, you're, you're kind of at the front of the line. Of those people, would you put the males at the the, the tippity top of the uh, of the line and then maybe uh, females off the, off the bat behind them just because of the potential risk? Absolutely. So on my last trip, because there weren't really clear guidelines about this, I thought the prudent response was to prioritize my O low titer male donors as first in the shoot if I needed blood. And then after that, my never pregnant female donors would be second in line before I would start considering type specific, mm -hmm. you know, A to A, B to B kind of stuff. And then after that, if I had a previously pregnant uh, low O-titer person, I would have to, that's going to be a tough call um, because, you know, it's weighing risk versus how confident are we in doing type-specific matching. But previously pregnant uh, O-low-titer donors would definitely be put at the, the bottom of my donor pool. Um, if I had anybody who was a lower sense. risk donor available. Um, I mean, as again, as always, you know, if you're doing a walking blood bank, I think planning um, has definitely failed us, right? Um, because if we have kind of a scheduled rotation of supply of blood, things like this could be tested and screened beforehand. Yeah, I think that it's always preferable if you have the ability to plan ahead and receive appropriately screened blood supplies, especially from the Armed Forces Blood Program, that's going to be your best bet and should be your first choice. Walking blood bank is always going to be a fallback position, but it may be the only option if you're in a remote or austere site that can't be supplied from some sort of central source. Or again, if you have one severe or multiple casualties right. who have exhausted um, I, I your other supplies. This. Is this a, a pretty standard test as far as you know the blood banking system goes? If they know that this unit is for whole blood, frozen whole blood, um, is, is this something that they're going to test for um, as part of the protocol? So the anti-neutrophil antibodies, the HLA testing that we're talking about here is not going to be a standard part of a protocol. It may be a part of a protocol when they're specifically earmarking blood for whole blood, but very few places are doing that. I know here in San Antonio, 
they're making whole blood available in the emergency department. So it's definitely something that could be done here. But in that case, they may just not be using previously pregnant female donor blood for that purpose because they have enough of a supply where they're not forced to make that choice. So it would definitely be something that you would have to ask specifically and communicate very clearly with the blood bank or whoever's doing your pre-deployment blood screening if that was testing that you thought was going to be important to your planning. Um, What about Rogam? Uh, You know, we know that, um, you know, giving it to women who've been previously pregnant and they potentially may have that reaction. Uh, we give them Rogram. Is is that extra stupid to to give to our patients? So Rogam is going to be a product that we use to help address the problem that women have when they are Rh negative and they have been exposed to Rh positive blood either through transfusion or if they are currently pregnant and have a miscarriage or even just a natural childbirth, the exposure to baby's blood may cause them to develop antibodies against the Rh-positive antigen. And this can cause them to have a higher risk of miscarriage in the future. So Rogam is a means of preventing their immune response against the Rh-positive blood. And that's more of an issue when we're talking about the female as the blood recipient rather than the blood donor. So Rogam is not going to have a role in preventing transfusion-related acute lung injury when we have a previously pregnant female donor. Is there anything else that we need to know other than, you know, just prior planning is probably 90 plus percent of the the cure for this problem? Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the big thing I'm just trying to get out there is that people need to be planning this as part of their walking blood bank and it's not being taught and it's not on their checklists. And it's not a super high-risk event, but it's honestly one that for most will be pretty easily prevented with a little bit of planning and some foreknowledge that this is a risk factor. The only other thing that I'll add is we're currently working on an article about this for the Journal of Special Operations Medicine, and we're hoping that the next time they update the whole blood CPG, that there's a little bit more clarity on this in terms of planning walking blood bank operation. uh, That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.